Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a very happy morning for me. I feel like a kid in the candy store because we're starting a new book of the Bible this morning, the book of Exodus. And so it's with great pleasure that I tell you, open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Now, it should be pretty easy to find. Exodus is just the second book of the Bible, so you're going to continue on from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and then you'll come to Exodus chapter 1. Now, let me give a brief explanation as to why we would spend our time over the next several months going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. It's really not that hard to understand, but it still bears some repeating. We believe that there's a God in heaven who guides and directs and speaks to mankind. We believe that God has a great plan of the ages, not only for humanity, but for all of creation, and he's moving things towards the fulfillment of that plan. We believe that that plan didn't begin in our own generation, but that plan not only stretches backwards to the beginning of all things, but that plan also extends us forward until things, all things are consummated in Jesus Christ. And we believe that the Bible gives us a divine record. And when I say divine, I mean it's divinely inspired by the living God. And that it speaks to us about great things that God has done in the development of that plan of the ages from distant times past unto its fulfillment in the future. And we believe this, that God is the same yesterday, day, and forever. And as we take a look at what God has done in the past, we learn something about what God wants to do in our lives right here, right now. So though this is a history lesson, Even though we are going to turn back the clock some, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years, it's not just a history lesson because the same God that's revealed to us on every page of the book of Exodus is the same God that speaks to you right now and in whose presence you are in right here, right now. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 speaks to us and says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all of his brothers, and all that generation. Now there's something very significant in the very first words of the text of the book of Exodus that we don't connect to so easily in our English translations. But it can be seen in the ancient Hebrew and in the Hebrew version of this in the original language. The very first word of the Hebrew text of the book of Exodus, it begins with the word and. Now I know that's poor grammar to write that way, at least it is in English. But it makes perfect sense. The Hebrew title for the book of Exodus comes from the first few words of the book in the original Hebrew. And it's the words, and these are the names of. And it describes for us how and continues the story from where it began in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis tells us that a large family came into the land of Egypt. This large family was the family of Israel. Israel, whose former name was Jacob. 
Jacob, who was the son of Isaac. Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, who God originally made a covenant with. And his covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they came into Egypt because God had sent Joseph there beforehand to prepare for a great famine that was going to come upon that entire area of the world. When they came into Egypt... They saw the pyramids that had already been built for a few hundred years. They saw the great sphinx because that had already been built. They came into a country that was already a great and mighty nation that had experienced many dynasties and pharaohs before. But when they came into Egypt, they came because God had already sent Joseph before. Verse 6 tells us that Joseph was there, but eventually Joseph died. That great grandson of Abraham who saved Egypt. This man, Joseph, who you could say he saved the world from terrible famine because he listened to God's voice speaking to him through Pharaoh's dream. And because of his great wisdom, because of his wise administration, he was lifted to a high and honored office in Egypt. And you could say that all of his family, all the children of Israel, literally the children of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, they rode in on Joseph's coattails. Because Joseph was such a savior for the people of Israel that his family was honored. And when they came into the land of Israel, they received some of the best land. Excuse me, when they came into the land of Egypt, they received some of the best land in Egypt, the land of Goshen. They were honored. They were favored in Egypt. But it didn't last forever because verse 6 tells us that eventually Joseph did what? He died. Just like everybody does. Joseph was a great man. One of the greatest men on the pages of the Bible. But God's work never ends with the passing of even a great man or woman of God. God's work goes on. And so as it continued on through the descendants of Israel, even as they lived in Egypt, eventually they came to a place where they were no longer favored in the land, but rather they came into a place of terrible bondage, even slavery. That's reflected to us in the following verses. Verse 7. But the children of Israel were were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. They came in to Egypt as a large family, sort of a clan you could think of them. Seventy, seventy-five people came into Egypt, but they multiplied. The birth rate was high. They were very fruitful. They multiplied, blessed by God in obedience to that original commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve, that they should fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply. That same language is used right here in the Hebrew text of Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. And it says that the land was filled with them and they were increasing in size all the time. You might say that's a great blessing. Well, it's true, but it created a problem. Look at it here now in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so we go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. 
Well, when this large family, 70, 75 people, came into the land of Egypt, and as they began to multiply, after a few generations, when there came a new king over Egypt who had no favors to pay off to Joseph, who had no special regard for the children of Israel, he saw the rapid multiplication of the people of Israel, and he was threatened by it. I think we have some room for exaggeration here. I don't think they actually thought that there would be more Hebrews, more children of Israel than Egyptians, but it seemed like it to them. Whenever they went to the store, it seemed like there were Hebrews everywhere. Whenever they tried to there, there they were Hebrews everywhere. What's going there? They're everywhere around. He might say, well, what's the big problem with that? Why didn't they just assimilate the children of Israel into Egyptian culture? Isn't that what normally happens among peoples? When you have an immigrant population, it might be awkward. It might be difficult for a generation or two. But if that immigrant population stays in a culture for one, two, three, four, five generations, they just assimilate. Why did not the Hebrews simply assimilate into Egyptian culture? I'll tell you why. Because the ancient Egyptians were some of the most racially proud and superior people on the face of the earth at that time. And they didn't want to have anything to do with intermarrying with foreign peoples. Oh, obviously there was some of it, but not that much. They zealously guarded their own racial identity, and because they were a people with a high sense of racial superiority, the ancient Egyptians did not want to intermarry with and assimilate with the Hebrews that were in their midst. And therefore, they felt very threatened by them. Threatened so much that Pharaoh said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to put down the birth rate of the Hebrew people. I know what we'll do. We'll solve two problems with one solution. The two problems were, I need slave labor. That's problem number one. Number two, we've got to stop the Hebrew people from having so many babies. This is what we'll do. We'll make the Hebrews slaves. That way I'll get my cities and my monuments and all of this built. Now, by the way, I just want to remind you, they didn't build the pyramids. The pyramids were already there. They didn't build the Sphinx. The Sphinx was already there. They built other things, but they didn't build those things. We'll solve the labor problem and they will be so oppressed, so downtrodden, so afflicted by the slavery we will put upon them that they'll stop having so many babies. And it'll be a win-win situation for the Egyptians. That's their thought. And so what did they do? They set taskmasters over them, verse 11, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities. And for hundreds of years, we don't know how long exactly, the people of Israel were in Egypt for some 400 years and maybe 150 or 250 or maybe even 300 of those years, they were in this brutal affliction of slavery for that period of time. That's very interesting. This is well documented by Egyptian history. There's a famous wall painting on an ancient tomb from Thebes, Egypt. It's modern day Luxor. And it's the tomb of an overseer of slave labor among the Egyptians. And these slaves would be very much like these Hebrew slaves impressed into work by taskmasters just as such were honored by this tomb and put to work in cruel circumstances by the Egyptians. 
by the way, that particular wall painting in Luxor is of sort of special interest to me because my wife Ingelow visited that very place and saw it when she was on one of her third world missionary dental expeditions off to Egypt to minister to people. But there she was in the midst of it and she saw this very painting illustrating slave labor under the Egyptians. So this is a very bad situation at the end of verse 11 for the Israelite people. There they are. They're in Egypt. There's no escape for them. They can't leave, and they're under the cruelty of this slavery. So what happens in the midst of it? Look at verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. You know what? I like that so much. I'm going to read that again. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Ladies and gentlemen, did you see that at verse 12? The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I think that's a wonderful thing. The Pharaoh, in his anger and in his hatred against the Jewish people, he thought that he could suppress their birth rate by enlisting them into slavery and making them serve in cruel bondage. But it was utterly unsuccessful because God was doing something above and beyond normal human thinking. God basically said, if you oppress them, I'm going to bless them. If you afflict them, I will open up windows in heaven and do something good for my people. And it turned out that Egypt was something like a mother's womb for Israel. You know how a mother's womb works. At conception, that child is very, very small, right? Just a few cells big. But in the mother's womb, in that safety, in that protection, the child grows, grows, grows until the child is large enough for delivery at birth. Well, Israel went into Egypt as just a small group of people, 70, 75 people. They come out of Egypt some 400 years later, a mighty nation. We don't know exactly how big, estimates anywhere from 1 to 3 million people. They went in small. They came out very big as a coherent nation. And God said, Pharaoh, it doesn't matter to me how much you oppress my people. I'm not going to stop blessing them. I'm not going to stop multiplying them. And here's the good news. This growth in the face of affliction has consistently been the story of God's people throughout all ages. The more they're afflicted, the more they grow. And that's true in the big picture of God's work throughout church history, if I could say those terms. It's really true. You find that the words of the ancient Christian writer Tertullian have been true, that the blood of the martyrs is like the seed of the church. And tyrants and despots and wicked men throughout the ages have thought that they could destroy God's church by practicing violence and persecution against it. But every drop of blood that is spilled becomes like a seed, and that seed is flowered in an increasingly growing and an increasingly strong And they multiply and they become abundant across the face of the earth. I think it's wonderful to think that when you consider not only in the recent past, just go back to the 20th century, but even further back beyond that, the church has grown and grown and grown even in the face of persecution. That's something that we can take great comfort in. 
Because not only is that true on some great panoramic view, ladies and gentlemen, it's true in your life. Now, I don't expect a single person here who's listening to me this morning to walk out of here saying, hooray for affliction. Hooray for all the problems in my life. No, but I just simply expect you to do what James tells us to do. Count it all joy. I'm not saying that it feels like joy, but decide to count it all joy when you are in the midst of all sorts of difficulties and problems. Why? Because God will use it for your good. That is a solemn promise that God makes to every child of God. Now, I recognize that there may be some people here among us this morning, and honestly, you haven't signed on yet to this Christian thing. You haven't really given your life to Jesus Christ. You haven't decided to repent and believe and receive the good things that God would give to you through Jesus Christ. Perhaps you will in the future. Perhaps you'll do it today. But to this point, as I'm speaking to you, you just haven't said that yet. I just want to make that clear that God's promise to bring good out of every affliction that we face, that's a promise to his people. And if you because of either a conscious decision or neglect, if you put yourself outside of the family of God's people, if you haven't, I know it's sort of a crude way to say it, but I'll just say it, you know, just expressing you know my heart, if you haven't signed on to it yet, then I can't say that that promise is for you. But, but I'll speak to you as if it were, because you can sign on to it today. Today you can repent and believe and be part of the family of God. But notice this great promise that God said, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. You could say this. You could say that suffering and persecution are like a great wave that comes upon a ship. And it looks like that that wave is going to destroy the ship. But what happens instead? The ship catches the wave and it uses it just to speed along stronger than ever before. That's what God's work is like in our life, that we don't have to fear suffering. We don't have to fear affliction because we trust God will work good even in the midst of it. But make no mistake about it. Verse 14 is accurate. It says they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Do you know what that means? It means they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. It means very difficult season, a season of true affliction. Nevertheless, because God's purpose was to bless Israel and to fulfill his role for them in his eternal plan, no amount of affliction could defeat God's eternal purpose for their life. And I can say this with great confidence to any child of God here today. No amount of suffering or affliction in your life can defeat God's purpose for your life. You have a place in his eternal plan for the ages. I just need to remind you, his eternal plan of the ages is not all about you. It's all about Jesus. You've got a supporting role in his great thing. If anybody thought it was all about them, I'm sorry, you are not the focus of God's great plan for the ages. Jesus is. Nevertheless, you do have a role in it. It's a supporting role. And you should be working for that best supporting actor or actress award in God's kingdom. You just want to be there as a part of God's great plan. But here's the truth. You walk after the Lord. You are his father. You are his child. His plan in your life will not be defeated by any amount of suffering or affliction. 
It will be fulfilled. That is God's solemn promise to you. I like the principle of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, as it's expressed. It says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. That in all of these things, as Romans chapter 8 says, you can be more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. That he gives you the ability to rise above even the most real and pressing sort of difficulty that can come in your life. The wickedness of the Egyptians could hurt the children of Israel, but it could not defeat God's plan for them. Now, once you notice it, at least up until this point in the book of Exodus, and I know we're only a few verses into it, but at least up to this point in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has no desire to kill the children of Israel. No, what does he want to do? He wants to enslave them. I think in many ways there is an analogy between Pharaoh and Satan and his attack against us. And I realize that as soon as I bring that up, I should probably do at least a little bit of explaining. I just mentioned the word or talked about the name of Satan. Satan, the devil, the bad guy. You know him. Well, let me be very clear about this. Because I can imagine that there's probably some people here this morning, you're, you're well-educated, you're cultured, you're sophisticated, and you can't believe that I just mentioned Satan as if he were an actual person. You, you just think, what, aren't we beyond this? Aren't we beyond believing in mythological, invisible people, you know, who do bad things? Aren't we all beyond this in a sophisticated age? And all I can tell you is this, is that I do believe in the existence of Satan. I do believe in the existence of a devil. I do believe that there was an angel of high rank who before the worlds were even created fell from God's favor and God's position of glory or his position of God's glory in the councils of heaven. And that not only did he fall, but he fell because of his pride, because of his establishment of his statements of I will against God and that he's a malevolent being and that he has every purpose of evil against not only God in heaven, but against everybody who's created in the image of God. And that means you and I. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you might think that that's vain superstition, but that's what the Bible says. And I would just put the question back upon you. If you really believe that there is no such thing as the devil, that there is no such person as the Bible would call Satan, if you believe that that's just a figment of humanity's imagination, do you really believe that you have an adequate explanation for the depths of depravity, for the heights of evil in this world? Can you actually look back across the history of the world and see how terrible man has been, not only individually but collectively, and believe that can all be explained by the depravity of man and himself? Now listen, I'm not trying to tell you that that human nature is inherently good and that we'd all be better if we just had good educations and good backgrounds and all that. No, I believe that humanity has fallen. And I believe that collective humanity, what we might call the world system, is bad also. But I believe that not even fallen humanity or the world in itself can adequately explain the depths of evil, the depths of dark power in this world, that there is such a thing as Satan. There is a devil in this world. Well, let me tell you something about the devil's work. If you are a child of God, he can't kill you. If you are a child of God, he can't destroy spiritual life in you. He can't do those things. He's powerful to do that. But you know what he can do? He can suck you into a place of bondage and servitude. 
And that's why it breaks the heart of any child of God to see this. Maybe it puts a big smile on the face of Satan, but it breaks the heart of any child of God to see another child of God in bondage to an addiction. In bondage to their own desires. In bondage to fear. In bondage to bitterness. In bondage to unforgiveness. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got good news for you. If you're in bondage to any of those things, if you're a child of God, yet somehow Satan, through his strategies, through his cleverness, through his wicked machinations, has drawn you into bondage to those things, there is power in the name of Jesus Christ to set you free. That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That Jesus, because of what he did for us on the cross, that we could never do for ourselves by the blood he spilled, by the death he died for us on the cross, the power is there to set you free from those things. But Satan, even though he can't kill you, even though he can't ruin the spiritual life in you, he would love to set you into bondage. Don't let it happen. You see, for Israel... In the midst of their very cruel and harsh service, life must have seemed hopeless to them. But listen, God was working all the time, even though they couldn't see it. Well, this was Pharaoh's plan. You could say it was Satan's plan against the children of Israel in Egypt. What does the Bible continue to say? Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the other's name was Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Now, these two Hebrew midwives are called in for an audience before the great Pharaoh of Egypt, a man who was regarded to be a god himself. And as they come in, they're expected to cower in fear, these two women. Now, we shouldn't think that these were the only Hebrew midwives. They're probably, and I I don't mean to be flippant about this, they're probably the presidents of the Association of Hebrew Midwives or something like that. And they're called in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a strict command for them. He says, listen, my plan of putting the Israelites under severe bondage has not worked. It has not worked at all because I thought that I could suppress their birth rate by making them slaves. But it didn't work at all. Instead, they're continuing to be fruitful. They're continuing to multiply. Their birth rates are still sky high. So listen, Hebrew midwives, this is what I command you to do. I command you to take every male child that's born of the Hebrews, and I want you to murder that child. Look at what it says right there in verse 16. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. Kill them all. Listen, I know what would be done in a modern age. In a modern age, they would have tried to murder those babies even while they were in the womb. Without that technology that they have today, now they say, no, let's just let it be born, and then we'll murder it as soon as it's outside of the womb. But it's the same spirit. It's that same attitude that says, no, we don't want these children in the world. Let's murder them. And you can see in this command of Pharaoh... Something that's not only evil, but indeed, I would call it satanic. Because if Pharaoh's plan at this point would have succeeded, the people of Israel would have ceased to exist after just one generation. Ladies and gentlemen, one generation without boys to populate a next generation means no more generations. 
This was an attempt not only to keep the people of Israel down, but to utterly destroy them as a people. And we see this as consistent with Satan's plan of Jew hatred throughout the centuries. It was an attack against God's Messiah and ultimately for Israel in his plan of redemption. Because Satan knew that the Messiah would come from the people of Israel. So somehow if he could destroy the people of Israel, then there would come no Messiah. No person to crush the serpent's head as was promised promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. Listen, since the Messiah has already come, Satan has not stopped hating the Jews because he knows what many people seem to forget. Satan himself knows that the Jewish people have an ongoing role in God's great plan of redemption. He knows that the Jewish people will exist in God's prophetic plan until the very end. And so that somehow Satan in his own deluded mind, because remember, he's the master of all lies. I believe he even lies to himself. But Satan has told himself that somehow if he can destroy the Jewish people, that he can derail God's plan. Does anybody else have an adequate explanation for the depths and the intensity and just the irrationality of Jew hatred as it existed through the centuries? It didn't end, I shouldn't say it didn't begin with the Egyptians, and it certainly didn't end with them. But it seems that every so, every few generations that comes along, there's a new group of people that says, let's destroy the Jews. Let's wipe them out from the face of the earth. We hear talk of that today. But I'll tell you what. As much as it must be resisted, as much as it must be stood against, as much as we must align ourselves with the covenant that God made to Abraham, where he said, whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless, and whoever curses you, I'm going to curse, as much as all that needs to be remembered, let me tell you what these plots of Jew hatred mean. They will never succeed. Never. Because if Pharaoh had succeeded, there would have been no Jesus to come and rescue us and to pay the debt for our sins and to bring us back to God. That means Pharaoh could have never succeeded. So what happens? Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you think that the midwives were afraid to be in the presence of Pharaoh? I do. He was a very intimidating person, regarded as a god in his own day and age. Nevertheless, what was the attitude of the midwives? Yes, Pharaoh, we fear you, we respect you, but you know what? We fear God even more. And God commands us to keep these children alive. God commands us to support and to choose and to promote life, especially innocent infant life. Therefore, we're not going to obey your command. We're going to preserve the Hebrew children alive. The midwives feared God, verse 17, and they saved the male children alive. They did this out of the same spirit that the Peter and the other apostles did when they told the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. We're going to do what God commands us to do. And ladies and gentlemen, look, we have a command from God that normally speaking, we're supposed to obey the government. We're supposed to honor him. We're supposed to pay our taxes. We're supposed to honor our governmental leaders and to pray for God to bless them and to obey the laws of the land. But when the laws of the land tell us to disobey God, it's what we might call a no-brainer. We do what God commands us to do. And if there's punishment to be endured for it, well, then we endure the punishment. But God was going to bless them for it. Look at it, verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, 
Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. (laughs) Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who was born to you, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. A much worse measure at the end of chapter 1. But first of all, you saw it there. Verse 18, the midwives answered back, Well, why haven't we obeyed you? Well, those Hebrew women, they're awesome. They give birth before we can even get there. Now, many of us read this and we assume that the Hebrew women were, that the Hebrew midwives were lying. I just want to point out the text doesn't say that they were lying. Maybe it's true that there were an awful lot of awesome Hebrew women who just gave birth in a hurry. Maybe God blessed them with short labors and easy deliveries. We really don't know. But whether they lied or whether they didn't lie, they're not commended or complimented because of any lie they may or may not have told. They were commended and complimented and blessed because they feared God more than man and they obeyed God rather than obeying man's disobedient command. The result of it all, verse 20, I love looking at it. The people multiplied and grew very mightily. The worst, the persecution against God's plan to multiply the children of Israel was the more God made sure the plan succeeded. And this is a wonderful example of the goodness and the power of God that's just as real in your life today as it was for the people of, e- of Israel in Egypt at that time. Pharaoh said less. God said more. Guess which one won? Pharaoh said stop. God said go. Guess which one won? That's how it is in your life today. If the battle was just between Pharaoh and the people of Israel, then Pharaoh would have clearly won. But the real battle included God into the equation. And it's not just Pharaoh against Israel. It's Pharaoh against Israel and God. Ladies and gentlemen, when you're on God's side, that's a winning proposition every time. And God won this battle. He won his victory through courageous individuals who decided to do the right thing, no matter what the consequences. He won his victory through those courageous midwives. Friends, I know that God reigns in heaven today just as much as he did those 3,500 or however long years ago it was in Egypt. I know that God reigns in heaven just the same. This is my question. Where are the people who have the courage that these Hebrew midwives had? The people who said, God, I will stand up and I will be used as an instrument in your plan. No matter what the price is that I have to pay, I will do it. That's how God advances his kingdom. Oh, he's promised he'll advance it and that no weapon formed against you or me shall prosper. But he does it through courageous individuals who say, I will bear whatever price is ordained for me to pay so that I can see God's work done in this generation. Matter of fact, notice how God does it. We'll conclude with this. Verse 22, at the end of the verse, Pharaoh commanded that every son who was born to you shall be cast into the river. You see, Pharaoh sensed that his plan didn't work. His plan to afflict them and drive down the birth rate didn't work. So he says, okay, I'll do another plan. I'll command the midwives to kill all the boys. That plan didn't work. 
So what's the third plan? I'll command them to cast all the boys into the river. Surely that will do it. No, Pharaoh, you don't even know it, but you just set the path for your own destruction. Because a boy who was cast into the river is going to be raised up in your own household and will have the equipment that he needs from the Egyptians. And then later on, he'll get the equipping he needs from God to be raised up to be the deliverer that will defeat you, Pharaoh, and bring liberty to the people of God. And that was a boy who was cast into the river. Well, okay, there was a basket underneath him when he was cast into the river. But was he not cast into the river? Was this not a fulfillment of what Pharaoh said to happen? Every son who was born to you, you shall cast into the river. Well, he didn't say you couldn't put him into a basket. And that's what we're going to pick up with next week when we get into Exodus chapter 2. You get the point of it, friends? God can work his deliverance right now through the very things that the devil means to destroy you. That's true. Even in the midst of a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, Jesus is greater still than all of that. I'll just end it on a little bit of a personal note. Friends, I these last few weeks, I've been reminded more than ever that there is so much pain in this fallen world. We know people, don't we? People dear to us dear to us as a congregation who are afflicted with cancer, who are born with problems uh, as newborns. But we know people who are going through intense struggle, whether it be spiritually, whether it be financially, whether it be socially, they're under the gun. I heard of two dear friends in just recent weeks, two dear friends in Germany. One of them has an inoperable brain affliction that looks like unless God intervenes, it'll take his life. And he's a young man. Another dear woman, a dear friend. Our love, our heart goes out to her, just diagnosed with cancer that's filling up her body. And you just say, oh, Lord, there's so much pain in this fallen world. And God says to you and I, I will glorify myself even in the midst of that affliction. Sometimes I will do it by healing and delivering that person from the very infliction that they're in. Other times I will do it by triumphing over it and through it to show my greatness. Our question is not whether or not God will triumph. He will. Whether or not you will benefit from his great triumph. Are you in bondage right here, right now? You're in bondage to some sin. You're in bondage to some fear. You're in bondage to some substance. You're in bondage just as much as the Israelites were afflicted in Egypt. You are afflicted in your own soul. Jesus Christ is here to sympathize with you right now. He is present in the midst of your sufferings. But he's here to deliver you from the bondage right now. Will you receive it from him? Father, that is my prayer for these precious people, these saints of yours, these beloved of you. Lord, I pray that chains would be released. The people who have suffered long under bondage would see hope and peace and a new light. And that you would bring a great deliverance for them. So do that, Lord. And Father, I pray for those here this morning. They're not yet 
persuaded that they should be your followers. Lord, I just pray a simple prayer. Change their minds. Cause it to make sense to them right now of who you are and what you want to do in their life and how you want them to be a part of your great plan for the ages. Do it, Lord, and bring yourself glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.